if you remember the uh, old cartoon comic strip Peanuts, I know uh, I actually saw somebody wearing a Charlie Brown t-shirt today. Yeah, so perfect. I'm glad that you knew exactly what I was talking about today, because that works out really well. But um, an old classic one, one of my favorites, is uh, a conversation between Charlie Brown and Linus, best friends. You know, Linus, one of my favorite characters in that strip, because he reminds me of my middle daughter. He's just totally go with the flow, totally happy to be there, thinks about the big picture, but, you know, doesn't think about the details because he's a kid. But they're having this conversation where Linus tells Charlie Brown, uh, when I get big, I'm going to be a humble little country doctor. I'll live in the city, and every morning I'll get up, climb into my sports car, zoom out into the country, then I'll start healing people. I'll heal people from miles around. And the last little pain of the strip, he says, and proudly proclaims, I'll be the most world-famous, humble little country doctor there is. (laughs) I think about this conversation with Linus and Charlie Brown, because that's probably where we find ourselves quite often, is that we want to be humble. We want to embrace humility in our lives, but despite the fact that it's something we all want to strive for and try to achieve, sometimes it can be one of the most difficult things to grasp, is what true humility in our our lives. We've talked about humility a lot so far in this, this series, and it may seem a bit repetitive, but I think it's a topic that is worth talking about more than just once or twice, because humility can be one of the biggest struggles for us. And I think it's because humility is on the opposite side of the coin for the biggest temptation that we have in our lives, which is pride. Pride is one of the easiest things for us to grasp and one of the easiest things for us to cling to, to kind of declare our own self-worth and our own value. And and pride, I'll, I'll say this, is at the root of every sin that we can commit. In fact, pride was what initiated the very first sin and found in Genesis chapter 3. It's that the man and the woman basically were convinced that they didn't need God telling them what to do. They had it all figured out. They could do things on their own. That they, they could be the masters of their domain. It led to the downfall of, of man. Pride is, is such a difficult temptation to overcome because I think in the midst of pride, we get this incredible feeling or, or this kind of idea of, of satisfaction based on our own achievements and our own accomplishments. We're taught from a young age that we need to have self-worth, that we need to learn to take care of ourselves and not have to rely on other people. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We need to be able to take care of ourselves. But ultimately, we need to learn to lean on one another. Because leaning on one another, that's, that's kind of what Christ tells us to do. To be one, to be the church, to be in unity together. And humility is the antidote to pride. And we're going to continue our, our series, Shoes, today. We're in week three of this series where we're walking with the people that Jesus walked with and learning kind of how their encounters with Jesus changed them and what we can do with that. And we've, we've kind of had fun with this, saying if they wore shoes, what kind of shoes would they wear today? We haven't really told you guys what all the different shoes are, but I'm curious how many of you, if you did hear about it, may have tried to guess who belonged to who. Today, we're going to slip off our normal shoes and put on a pair that as of just a few decades ago, it was a little less conventional, a pair of flip-flops. Now, I've not got flip-flops here. I've got these, and that's because I left my flip-flops at home this morning as I was rushing out the door at about you know, 5.45 this morning, and I uh, got about halfway here, and I, I uh, texted Matt and said, hey, have you left home yet? And by the time he texted back, he was already here, and then I texted Phil for some reason. And uh, if you know Phil... 
Phil is a sandals kind of guy. Phil likes to wear sandals around the office, often with socks. We're working on that, but he likes to wear them with his socks. And so he goes, I'll bring you my Tevas. And then he he said, actually, I've got something even better. I've got these that were custom made for me in Panama. So these these were custom made for Phil's feet in Panama. But a pair of flip-flops or a pair of sandals, you go back even just a couple of decades ago, and they were often worn at the beach or to the pool or maybe when you were working out in the yard or or something like that, worn kind of when your feet were going to get wet or dirty, and that's what they were there for. Now you kind of see flip-flops worn all the time, but it wasn't that long ago that they were out of the mainstream, at least in terms of shoes you would wear on a regular basis. They weren't shoes that you would wear to the office. They weren't shoes that you would wear to church or anything like that. They were shoes that kind of defied convention just a little bit. And if there's one character in the Bible that defied convention, especially in terms of the way he dressed and the way he acted, it's a guy by the name of John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist, if if there was ever anybody who had the excuse to live a prideful life outside of Jesus, it was John the Baptist. He was the son of very honorable parents who were born from a very highly respected priestly line. In fact, if you want to know a little bit about John the Baptist, kind kind of step back just a moment here. Between the Old and New Testament is a 400 year gap of divine silence, of God not speaking to his people. That silence was broken when God spoke through his angel to a man named Zechariah, letting him know, you and your wife are going to have a child, even though you're in your old age, that that child is John the Baptist. This child is going to come, and he's going to set the stage for the Messiah who's going to come later. Jesus was born just about six months after John. They're cousins. They knew each other well. But John, despite all of this, despite this very high status that he could have lived in, lived in the desert. He wore clothes that were made out of the fur from a camel's back. He ate locusts and wild honey. But yet John was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was still in the womb. John's commission from the very beginning was to set the stage for the Messiah. He was to to do everything that was needed for the Messiah and then to get out of the way. And John knew that. John walked such a life that Jesus himself called John the greatest man who's ever walked this earth in Matthew chapter 11. And yet what I love about John is that the climax of his ministry, dozens and dozens, probably hundreds of followers, a high popularity, he's baptizing people, he's speaking in the name of God, he's able to step out of the way. We're going to be in John chapter 3 if you've got a Bible, we'll have it up on the screen here in just a moment when we get to the, the actual scripture. But John chapter 3, if you want to follow along, we see a transition for Jesus here as he's about to step in and take the place of John the Baptist. Now, Jesus has just had a conversation with Nicodemus. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago in the first half of John 3. And now, just a matter of a day or two later, most likely, uh, this, this event takes place. And what we see here is Jesus stepping in to basically replace John. And John is okay with this, but his disciples, his followers, are not. And they're the ones that really struggle with this. And we're just going to kind of jump into this story written by John the disciple, not the same guy. John the the disciple writes us this in John chapter 3, starting in verse 25. It says, an argument developed between some of John, that's again John the Baptist, some of John's disciples, and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. This is basically akin to baptism. They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. 
Now we'll pause for just a second here because a couple of things are taking place here in, in this, these verses 25 and 26. First off, if you know the story of Jesus, who did he go to to get baptized? John the Baptist, right? This has taken place sometime earlier. I don't know exactly how much earlier, but it's probably safe to say at least a few months earlier. Let's, let's pause for a second and step into their culture. Because for us, it's easy to kind of think through this. If somebody baptizes you, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's maybe that person is a person on staff at a church, or that person helped lead you to Christ, or they're a close friend. That's the one who would baptize you. In this culture, the person who did the baptizing, especially in the case of John the Baptist, basically was on top of, of the chart. Anybody that he baptized was a lesser person than him. That person could not then replace John. That was how his followers viewed this. Okay, And we can relate this probably in, in other ways. If somebody starts something or creates something, the person that kind of replaces them sometimes is looked at as lesser than. Or, or maybe you've created something and you've hired a replacement. We, we sometimes get this in our mind. Well, it's good, but it's not as good as what John did, right? That's what his disciples are looking at and thinking about here. And I think this is actually a pretty natural reaction. Because after all, it's easy for us to feel prideful when something or someone new comes along. We're territorial by nature. We might see somebody get hired that is maybe a threat to us. They're a little bit younger, maybe a little bit better at the job. We'll admit that. But, you know, I've earned it. I've been here. And, and now they're kind of infringing on my territory here. We feel the need to prove ourselves. We feel the need to make sure people see our value and see our worth because you can't just replace me with that next guy. That's what our typical mindset and nature is. And I think that's what his disciples are doing here. But look at what John replies with. Verse 27, to this John replied, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. Now how often do we, we think about this? I love John's reply there. You, you can only have what you're given, he says. I think John understands something here about our, our faith and how our faith ties to humility. I think John is, is telling us, essentially, humility is when we learn who God really is and who we truly are. Humility comes when we identify truly, honestly, who God is and who we are. Sometimes we blur that line a little bit. Yes, we know God's God and we're us, but sometimes I don't think we stop and fully grasp everything about God and then in relation everything about ourselves. And to emphasize this point, like John doesn't specifically say these words here, but in saying this, what John does is he gives what I think is one of the most powerful sermons ever given, and it's one sentence long. John says a couple of verses later that we must decrease so God can increase. Well, what does this look like? What does this mean? This is one of the most powerful, again, I think, quick sermons that, that's ever been preached. John is kind of echoing what we've talked about through this series. I said this quote from C.S. Lewis a couple weeks ago. Phil repeated it last week that humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. It's removing yourself as the center, as the apex of your universe and focusing on God instead. God cannot increase in your life if you don't give him room to increase. He can't increase and become the most important aspect of your life if there's something else that's already the most important aspect of your life. And often, that's the role I play. That's the role you play. 
Everything centers around me. Or maybe it's around your kids or your family, but it's still something that you, you want in there. And John says, no, it has to go around God. I must decrease so that he can increase. Look, look how he illustrates this in verse 29. John says, it's the bridegroom who marries the bride. And the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. I'll, I'll kind of touch more on the first part of that here in just a minute, what the bridegroom and his friend look like. But just look at that last line. I am filled with joy at his success. How many of you, that's natural and easy? And how many of you, that can be a struggle? I've found, I'll just be honest with you, for me to be joyful in somebody else's success, often, this is, I hate to say this, it often depends on what successes I'm having in my life. If things are rough, if I'm stuck in a rut and somebody else has success, I'm like, oh, great, good for you. That's just kind of my mentality sometimes. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was going through a rough process where I was at. I was trying to, trying to find another open door for another, another ministry opportunity, and it just wasn't going well. The, the doors were shutting in my faces. I've, I've told you this story. Uh, and, and it was, wasn't going well the church I was at. And then one of my friends gets a job at the church that we both did a residency at. And I'm like, yeah, of course they hired him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was tough. It was tough. You know, that was a church that I would have liked to have a job at. I would have liked to have been there. I was having a hard time finding joy in that moment. Now, if I'm in the middle of successes, in the middle of joy and somebody else has success, I find great joy in that. Even if it's a little bit more successful or a little bigger or greater than what I've gotten, that's fine because things are going well for me. Often I think that's where we land, right? It's easier to find joy in other people's successes and happiness when you have it yourself. For John, he doesn't give that condition. John has had great success, and he's just willing to give it all away. That's where he's at right now. John knew his purpose here. And I think when we look at what John does here, the conversation that he has, it's a very short conversation that he has with his disciples. And really, John the Baptist for being such a big figure in the Bible, we only see him a few times. But there's so much in there. So much in there. I want to pull two quick thoughts out and look at those today. How we can learn humility from him just by looking at this conversation and then I want to come back at the end and say what we're going to do with it. Here's the first lesson we learn about the humility of John the Baptist. Humility begins when you acknowledge that God is sovereign. I think it's one thing to say God is God, but do you stop and think about the sovereignty of God? In other words, stating that he is in control over everything. John recognizes that everything about him and about his ministry comes from and is ordained by God. Again, go back to verse 27. A person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. I think as Christians, it's easy sometimes to at least acknowledge that your gifts and your talents and your abilities come from God, but how often do we stop and even acknowledge that our opportunities come from God? That even those moments come from God? I've told you, again, my story about trying to follow God's call into the ministry and what that looked like for me going and teaching high school for a few years and knowing pretty much immediately that I was going to step into ministry at some point. I was just waiting on God's timing. But going back before that, I was raised in church, and I always thought that I wanted to be involved in ministry some way, shape, or form. I just always had that feeling that was where God wanted me to be. 
And I remember in high school, even writing on one of those things you do as a senior where it says, where do you see yourself in five years or 10 years? And I put in the music ministry. I didn't realize at the time that, you know, sometimes your passions and your talents don't line up. Like, I can carry a tune in a bucket, but it's not a real big bucket, you know? I mean, some of you, I think, can relate to me. I stand back there, you know, during music. I can tell some of y'all relate to me on that one, so it's fine. It's beautiful to God. That's what matters, right? Um, but I just knew that I wanted to be involved with ministry some way, shape, or form. And so I, I tried different things. I was involved in ministries during college. Uh, even while I was at college, I tried to start a couple ministries. It just never, never even formulated, like never even got one meeting with anybody underway and got out of college and I had some, some pastors at the church I was at trying to, to fluff me up, saying, hey, we're going to do this and you're going to run this for us. Like, great, I'm, I'm excited, let's go do it. That lasted like two weeks and just kind of fell apart and it just never took off, right? And then even when I was in Bible college trying to find a job, trying to, to almost talk my way into some jobs, just never materialized. And it was so easy for me in that moment to point the finger, say, well, if he would have just supported me a little bit more if she would have just given me the opportunity, if they would have just believed in me, you know, then, then this probably would have worked, right? Because it certainly wasn't me. Well, I look back at it, and maybe it wasn't me. Maybe it wasn't them. It just, I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. Ultimately, I wasn't waiting and trusting God. I was relying on my own ability, on my own, what I thought were God-given talents, but I wasn't trusting God to use those the way he wanted them used. He's the one that gave them to me, but I was the one doing what I wanted to do with them. And I failed to do a couple of things here. I failed, number one, to trust God's timing. I failed, number two, to rely on the other people he had put in my path in the right way. And number three, and probably the most important, I failed to just deny myself and to get out of his way and to trust God in directing the ministry that he had laid into my heart. It was all that I could do to build up my ministry, and when I look back at it, that one word I just said right there was the problem. My ministry. It was about what I thought I could do. Because I wanted to do big things. I wanted to, to, to make a splash. I wanted a bunch of people to come hear the gospel from me. It was more about what I could do than what God could do through me. It was more about God, or it was less about God, and, and it was all about Kurt. And sometimes I fail to remember in those moments and I still need the reminder every once in a while that every aspect of the ministry God's called me to is ordained by him, and it's under his control. And I'm humbled and honored that I get to play a part in it. I'm humbled and blessed and honored that he opened the door for me to be here at this church, and that I get to be up here in front of you and, and share with you on a weekly basis. Or like last week, we get to, I get to sit back and listen to somebody else on staff get up here and share. But there's still that, that prideful itch in the back of my mind sometimes. There's still that confidence that I have that sometimes comes out looking like cockiness that sometimes spills over into a little bit of arrogance. There's still that threat. There's still that temptation there. Why? Because again, that's the greatest danger is myself. And sometimes I've got to stop and remember that this isn't about me whatsoever. That not me, not this church, none of it. It's about God. It's about God and his kingdom. And as a church, we would be smart to remember that, that God's the ultimate authority over all of us, your individual lives, us collectively. God is the authority. God is sovereign. And the more you can accept and acknowledge that, the easier it is to humble yourself because you'll see him for who he truly is and start to see you for who you truly are.
Here's the second thing we learned from John. The goal of our lives, the entire purpose and goal of our lives should be to point people to Jesus. Yes, walking with Jesus, that's, that's most important. But then once you're walking with Jesus, he tells you to point people towards him. He tells us that multiple times throughout the gospels. And before you can learn to point people to Jesus, you have to learn to make him the Lord of your life. Again, go back to what John says in verse 28. He, he says, in the, this is from the ESV, you yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Now we'll pause for a second here and kind of set this up because when he's talking about the friend of the bridegroom, the best way we can relate to this is saying he's the best man. If you guys have ever been a best man at a wedding, you know what your role is. It's to set all the fun before the wedding, right? Typically, that's what the best man does. He does those things he doesn't tell his mother about later by what's going on at the bachelor party, okay? Like in the case of mine, we went to Buffalo Wild Wings and came home and played video games. It was epic, okay? I mean, surprised they didn't make a movie about it afterwards, you know? <laughs> like, like we were in bed by 11 o'clock that night. But back in this culture, the best man or the friend of the bridegroom did so much more than that. They weren't responsible for the bachelor party. They were responsible for all of it. Their job was to make sure everything was set, everything was in place, including the bride, that the bride was set and ready to go so that the groom could simply show up and enjoy his bride. Some of us get this, this moment now, guys, a lot of you, uh, let's be honest, probably didn't have a whole lot of say-so in planning the weddings, okay? I won't ask for a show of hands. I don't want anybody getting in trouble. But often, what is it that you do? You come out there, and you look down the aisle, and there you see her walking up the aisle. Now, with Jennifer and I, it was a little different because we did pictures ahead of time. And so we had the room cleared. It was just her and I and the photographers in the room, and they've got, a, you know, got my back turned, my eyes closed. She walks up the aisle. They've, they've got her eyes closed, leading her up the, hand, the thing, and they tell us to turn around. Okay, open your eyes. There's my bride. Just, you know, a few feet down the bottom of the steps from me. I can see her for the first time. John's saying, that's my role. My role is to present the bride for Christ. It's to present the bride for the groom. And there's so much imagery throughout both the Old and New Testament in the Old Testament, the imagery is that God is the groom and Israel is his bride. In the New Testament, that changes to Christ and his church. But what John is telling us here is that whether it's Old or New Covenant, Old or New Testament, none of that matters. All that matters is that the groom is here and he's announcing his intention to, to bring the bride to him. That's what matters to John. And he claims he is so glad to stand by and watch as the Messiah takes his place. As it says in the New Living, we, we read this earlier, that he was filled with joy at his success. It says in, in the ESV that, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete because he has done his job. As believers in God, as followers of Jesus, our humility stems from understanding and acknowledging the sheer majesty of God and the lordship of Jesus. I mean, even, again, John states, what? He must become greater. But how can he become greater? The only way is that we, we become less, that we decrease. John echoes, says what Paul will echo later about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus, although he was equal with God, didn't consider himself equal with God, but instead he humbled himself and he came down to earth and stepped out of all the glories of heaven to put on our very human limitations, 
our emotions, our temper, our, our frailty. And he was faithful to God all the way to the cross. That's what John the Baptist is doing here. Hey, I may have this role, I may have this status, but I'm giving that all the way because it's all about Jesus. And I'm asking you, church, are we able to do the same thing? To say none of this matters anymore, it's just simply all about Jesus. And one of the easiest ways we can remember it's all about Jesus is remembering a very powerful statement. It's not all about you. Our entire world would tell us that it's about you. Feels good, do it. You want to do it, go for it. That goes completely the opposite of what the Bible tells us. It is not all about you. Rick Warren quoted that that famous line when he started off one of the most impactful books ever written, Purpose Driven Life, when he said, it's not all about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. And what's that purpose? To go and make disciples of all nations. To baptize him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To seek and save the lost. To serve others. To bring a full life to others. To be his witnesses everywhere that we go. So so what do we do with all this? What's all this humility mean? What's it all about? Normally I give you a takeaway at the end of a sermon. I want to do this a little differently. I'm going to give you six takeaways. Actually, one takeaway with six points. I've, I've already preached most of my sermon. Now I'm going to do another six-point sermon. So hang on. We're, it's halftime if anybody needs a break, okay? How can you live a life that points others to Jesus? You may say, Kurt, I'm not really sure what you want me to do with it. How do we point others to Jesus? You talk about this, but what do we do with it? I think it's simple. I think there's things you can do every day that point people to Jesus. You don't have to go to your neighbor's house with your Bible in your hand, you know, ready to to sit down and have a conversation with them. But here's what you can do. Number one, share your story. Share your story. Again, you don't have to have a, a specially crafted sermon to preach the gospel. You have to have the life that God's given you and the background that God has given you. Ben talked about that earlier, about the things we look back on, the evidence of, of things in our lives. Here's the best part about, you look across this room and it's, it's, there's a lot of faces in here this morning. There's a diversity to our backgrounds. Your background is gonna reach people that my background won't. Your background is gonna reach people who are similar to you, who have gone through things that you've gone through or, or come from the same places that you come from. So it's valuable Never hesitate to use your story when it's going to win people to Jesus. Daniel chapter 4, Daniel says, I want all of you to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. You can have the same statement, the same story. It doesn't have to be some big, huge, glamorous story. I always tell people if they ask for my testimony, I'm like, I was raised in church. That's my testimony. Like, it's not an exciting one. But guess what? There's some other people who were raised in church who got to that span in their late teens, early 20s. They're like, this is stupid. I don't want to be here anymore. And had to find out why they wanted to be again. Okay? There's people like you out there and your story will impact them. Your story can preach circles around a sermon that I write. So use it. Number two, demonstrate the love of Jesus. Demonstrate the love of Jesus. He tells us in John chapter 15, One of the last things he tells his disciples, he says, this is my commandment, love each other in the same way that I have loved you. 
And he goes on in that same conversation to say that the greatest love a man can have is sacrificing himself for his friends, laying himself down. But you demonstrate his love. That can be difficult because some people are difficult to love. Who's the difficult person in your life? How can you show them the love of Jesus today, tomorrow, this week? How can you bring the love of Christ to them? Number three, kind of on the same line here, pray for your neighbors. Your neighborhood around you might be the most important mission field that you have in your life. Often we think about mission fields and and going different places. Sometimes the hardest place to present the gospel is right there around your home. The people you see on a regular basis. If I go somewhere else across the world and present the gospel and get rejected, okay, I'm going to go back home. But to present it to people you're going to see every day, that can be challenging. I'm grateful that where I live, I've got a diversity of of all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of of people around me. I'm not sure that any of them go to church. And I look at that as a blessing because that's people that I can try to reach, people that I can talk to, people that I can pray for. Paul says in Colossians 1, since the day we have heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Who could that apply to for you? Who who could you look at in your life, in your circle, and, and pray for them every single day? Number four, invite people to church. We always say that church attendance isn't the only thing that matters, but the more people that come and listen to the gospel being presented, the more seeds that can get planted. This, I'll say this over and over. This right here that we do is awesome. It's, it's important. This isn't where life change takes place. This is where seeds get planted. This is where people can hear about the gospel and start asking questions. But somebody comes and they hear something and they come back and they come back And eventually they plug in, that's where transformation starts to happen, is when they're with you on a regular basis in a a small group, serving together, asking deeper questions, getting deeper answers. And here's what I love about having people come to church. Sometimes the most impactful and important things I say aren't the things I even know I'm saying. I'm not making this up. I'll hear this a lot. Somebody will say, man, when you said such and such in that sermon, that just hit me. I'm like, I don't even remember saying that. That wasn't even on my script. Like it was just something offhanded. And I look back at that and kind of smile because that's just God at work. That's the Holy Spirit at work. It's the Spirit putting something through my mouth that I didn't even plan to say. (laughs) And somebody, maybe one person needing to hear it. And that, that's the switch that flips. And it's not because of me. I always say God does a good job of making me look smart up here. It's all him, okay? It's the spirit working, and that happens when people come. Again, they may not hear something that just blows their life away, but when they're here, God has a chance to reach them in a different way than he's going to day to day. Number five, this might be the hardest one for me. Learn to get out of God's way. And specifically learn when to get out of God's way. (laughs) This is, again, this is hard because what are we? We're Americans. We like to take care of things on our own. I was a kid, you know, maybe 10, 12 years old. I'd try to help my dad with some project around the house. Dad, how can I help? You can help me by getting out of the way. <laughs> Needless to say, I didn't learn a whole lot of handyman skills at a young age. I had to learn them a little bit later when I actually was able to help. In fact, I, I joked uh, with somebody after 8 o'clock, said, one of the times I do remember him letting me help, I was a teenager. We were uh, renovating our house, <clears throat> and he was uh, trying, we were, we were we took out a wall that was load-bearing, so we were putting a beam in. And he was up in the ceiling trying to drill down through a stud so he could start setting a beam. 
And I asked him, I said, you need my help? Uh, just let me know, you know, when you see this come through. A minute later, I see it come through the sheetrock, not through the stud. And uh, I hear him say a word that I can't repeat in church. And uh, he starts, of course, seeing light come up through the hole that he just drilled. I said, uh, you need to go about an inch to the right. He goes, thanks for the help now. I said, I offered it earlier, you know, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but sometimes we need to be like the little kid that wants to help. Titus was wanting to help me do a project at the house yesterday. I said, buddy, I just need you to, to sit over there right now. I think God tells us the same thing sometimes. The best way you can help me is to sit down and let me be God. To sit there and let me be God, I've got it. I'm God, you're not. Sometimes that's what we have to do. And the hardest thing I think that we can do isn't setting out, it's knowing when to set out. Again, John chapter three, we must decrease so he can increase. He must become greater, we must become less. And number six, maybe the most important of all these things that we can do to point people to Jesus, and maybe the hardest as well, you just have to do it. Start, begin. It's easy to make a list of all the things you wanna do. It's easy to talk about what you want to try to do to reach your neighbors. It's easy to talk about how you're going to lead people to Christ. But you actually have to do it. You have to do it. Again, that's what Jesus told us to do. To go make disciples of all nations. But we can't make disciples if we don't go out and start trying to make disciples. You don't have to have a perfect plan. You don't have to have it all scripted out. It's okay to fail. But we have to do it. That's what he calls us to do, to take his message into the world and to lead people to Christ by showing them who Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your son. We're so grateful for Jesus and the humility, Lord, that he, he showed us by coming to heaven or coming from heaven to earth to become one of us, to, to go to the cross for us. And God, we're grateful for men like John whose entire purpose was to point people to you. God, I pray that we would embrace that same calling, that our whole goal, our whole reason for life would be to lead people to Jesus. God, God I know sometimes that's a struggle. Sometimes our, our world tells us it's all about me, but God, help me get out of my own way so I can get out of your way. And God, anybody else that struggles with that too, Lord, help them to get out of their way so they can get out of your way. Because God, we want everybody to know you. We want you to be honored and glorified in all that we do. Let us be that city on a hill that's shining a light for you everywhere that we go, letting people know it's all about Jesus. We pray this in his name.